Psalm 119, 73 to 80 begins this way. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Those, let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Well, let's pray once more. Lord, bless your word. Even in our hearing now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There was a book, a philosophy book, published in 1948 by a man who was a professor at the University of Chicago, a professor of English, actually, although he's writing somewhat outside his field, an Asheville native, as it turns out. Uh, named Richard Weaver, and his book was a sort of complex analysis of late medieval philosophy and the way in which certain movements within late medieval philosophy had influenced the age in which he lived. And it, in many respects, it went on to be seen as a great book, but but the, the book is best known for its title, and its title is is one that many people have heard of, even if they're not familiar with the rather complex arguments he makes. And the title of the book is this, Ideas Have Consequences. And I say this because this section of Psalm 119 follows along a, a trail that, that begins in verse 73 with a key statement, a, a key idea. And what we see the psalmist do in the remainder of the section is to take that idea, that axiom, that basic truth, and to show the implications of that truth, both for his own life and his own prayers, and even for how he sees his relationship with others. And the truth really is stated quite clearly in verse 73. He says this, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The idea, the animating idea of this section has to do with the fact that God is a creator, God is the creator, and God is a personal creator. He's the personal creator of the psalmist. The scriptures tell us he's the creator of all things and of all men. And what the psalmist then does is he, because he knows this to be true, your hands have made and fashioned me. Because he knows this to be true, he goes on to pray in line with that. Now, we know, of course, from the rest of Scripture that the fact of God being the creator of all things is of central importance. It's, it's really a baseline assumption of the whole Scriptures. It's stated clearly in Scripture, and then it's assumed everywhere throughout Scripture. And, 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 and all, the, uh, all of our most reliable and trustworthy theologians have recognized this, uh, just choosing almost at random from Herman Bavink, who, write, who says, no right relation to God is conceivable apart from this 
basis, that basis being that God is the creator. God is the one who has created us. When you turn through your Bible, you'll see this repeated over and over again at key moments as as the reason why we praise God, as the reason why we can trust God. Psalm 33 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We also see in the Bible that it's not only something that should cause us to worship God and to give him the praise that he deserves, but also it's something that the the writers of scripture often look to as a source of strength. You might be reminded of those well-known words in Isaiah 40, where Isaiah says this, really speaking as the mouthpiece of the Lord, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, uh, the creator of the ends of the earth. And then he goes on to say this, He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable and he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increased strength. In other words, the fact that God is the creator and the fact that God is a personal creator is axiomatic. It's the idea that has all these consequences, not just in this section of the Psalter, but actually in all the scriptures. This is the big idea of this section. God is the personal creator. And what we see then is the psalmist looks to his salvation and his word. And that is at the forefront of his thoughts. I wonder just at the beginning, because it is really the central truth of this section, if this is something that you believe to be true about God. Um, You might say that you believe it to be true, but have you considered the consequences of this truth? Your hands, God, your hands have made and have fashioned me. I think this truth about God as personal creator is a truth that by and large has been lost in our culture. Our our culture as a whole does everything to uh, bury this great truth uh, from the scriptures. It's one of the great forgotten truths of our day. You look around and you see that people have abandoned the truth of God as creator. And, and as the Bible tells us, as Paul lays out very clearly in Romans chapter one, in, in so doing, in exchanging the truth of God for a lie, uh, they end up embracing and manifesting all, all kinds of wickedness. All There are all kinds of consequences of trying to bury this great truth. We see it in the emptiness uh, with which fills uh, so many people's lives. They, they have no meaning in their lives. We looked at this before in Psalm 119, but I, I'm struck by it again. I was thinking about it even more recently, this, this deaths of despair that, that we see uh, uh, overcoming so many in our culture today. In fact, I, I believe it's, it's, if not the number one, one of the leading causes of, of males in our culture are so-called deaths of despair. These are deaths that are caused by pursuits of, uh, of some kind of uh, uh, way of masking the fact that there's no real meaning in life. But what do Christians say? What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach here? And what does the Bible teach from the very beginning to the end. Well, Psalm 139 summarizes it this way. I praise you, O Lord, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So what consequences does that truth have? Your hands have made 
and fashioned me. Well, the first consequence that we see is that the psalmist asks for something. In fact, he asks for several things in this psalm. And I, and I would say to you that in response to the question I asked earlier, do you really believe these things? One way to diagnose the level of your understanding of this truth of God as personal creator is to see if the requests that the psalmist makes in any way uh, parallel the requests that you make of the Lord yourself, the things that you hold central as you approach him in prayer. What's the first one? Well, it's in Psalm, uh, it's in verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. And so then he says this, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The psalmist knows that because God is his creator, that the way in which he needs to understand life needs to be through the lens of God's word. That if God's our creator, if God's the one who knows us intimately, if God's the one who formed our inward parts, who knew us in our mother's womb, if God is that kind of personal creator God, and if if human beings, all of us, are, are called created in the image of God, if that's true, well then, well then it's to, to God that we must look for instruction for how we're to live. We, why would we look to other people who are grasping around for meaning and for significance and for understanding when God has revealed himself to us? And so it's natural that the next thing the psalmist says, the very first thing he says that he asks for really in verse 73 is, Lord, since you created me, I'm asking you to give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And we've seen this before in Psalm 119. The psalm is clear that, that the commands of God, that the teaching of God, the instruction of God is, is for our good. And we know that it's, it's clear to us. God's made it clear to us. And we know that we're to study in order to understand God's word better. But, but I want to read for you what John Gill says about this little request that the psalmist makes. He says, let us, let us to pray unto God that he would open our understanding, that as, as he hath given us consciences to guide us, so also he would give eyes to these guides that they may direct us aright. And then he goes on to say this, you know, he was known for his study, but he says all our studying and hearing and reading and conferring will never be able to do it. It is only the power of him who made us to do it. He made our consciences. He only can give them this heavenly light and true knowledge and right understanding. Therefore, let us seek earnestly to him for it. I don't know if there's a better example we could have at the beginning of a seminary semester than this request here in Psalm 73. Lord, you made me, you, you created me. And so what I'm asking you for is that you who created me would now give me light through the study of your word, that you would teach me your commandments, that you would help me to understand you. Yes, we study. Yes, we utilize all the tools at our disposal. Yes, we work hard at this. The Bible tells us to do that by example and by direct precept. But at the end of the day, it's God's work in us. As Gil says, let us earnestly seek to him for it. We want to be shaped into men who make God's word plain to others. But what the text uh, tells us as well is that we need God to teach us through his word. We need to be instructed by him. When's the last time you asked for that? Maybe you were 
preparing a sermon and you felt the urgency of it. And so you asked the Lord for his help. But, but, but is, this, is this the cry of your heart? Lord, I, I know that I owe you everything. I know, that, I know that I wouldn't be here, that even my very being and existence, it, it comes from you. And, and because of that, what I need is for you to teach me. And he does it through his word. He does it through his commandments. That's the first request that the psalmist makes because your hands have made and fashioned me. Now, I want to show you in this uh, text what the context was in which the psalmist makes these requests, because I think sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, that's, that's a good thing to ask if I have enough time to study and if I have enough time to learn. In other words, if all my other problems are being taken care of, but just turn your eyes down to verse 75 so you know the context in which the psalmist is asking that the Lord would give him understanding. He's asking because he's in the midst of affliction. Verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So think about this. The psalmist isn't writing in a time of ease. He's not writing when he has leisure time on his hands to study. And Lord, I've now devoted these next three hours, so please help them be useful for you. No, he says, Lord, you've actually afflicted me. Now, he knows the affliction comes from God and is just. He says that your rules are righteous. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. But nonetheless, the fact remains that the psalmist was not in a time of ease. And yet this is what he asks the Lord for. Affliction and trouble, says Thomas Menton, are not only consistent with God's love, but they are parts and branches of his new covenant administration. The psalmist knows that. This is a good thing that I'm going through, but it's a hard thing I'm going through. And in the midst of it, Lord, teach me your commands. We know that the psalmist was thinking in covenantal terms in the midst of his affliction because of what he says in verses 76 and 77. What he says there, and this is really his second petition, his first is that the Lord would teach him, but the second begins in 76. Lord, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So what the psalmist says is, Lord, I want to keep learning. I want you to keep teaching me. I need you to keep teaching me from your word. And yet, Lord, as you teach me and as I'm afflicted, the comfort that I want to derive in the midst of affliction is comfort from your covenant love, from your steadfast love, as the ESV puts it. And it's love according to your promise. If we didn't see that word hesed immediately in verse 76, he makes it clear. This is according to your promise, Lord, that I want to receive comfort. Now, of course, this harkens us back, these, this, this phrase and this way of thinking about his relationship to the Lord harkens us, harkens our minds back to that most central chapter in the Old Testament. I hope you know this, that Exodus 34 is the text that's quoted and alluded to the most throughout any, uh, uh, more than any other Old Testament passage within the Old Testament. It's, it's that important. And if you don't know Exodus 34, well, you're going to miss so much of what the Bible teaches. But in Exodus 34, uh, what we see is that the Lord appears to Moses. And, and here's how the text records it for us. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and listen to these words, because these are the words that 
are in the psalmist's minds. These are the words that he's looking to for comfort. These are the truths that he's hanging on to in the midst of affliction. It says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, Lord, even your affliction is an evidence of your faithfulness. And in the midst of that affliction, I look to your steadfast love, your covenant love for my comfort. Let that be my comfort, Lord, according to your promise to your servant. He uses another term, very similar term for this second petition, really 76 and 77 are asking for much the same thing, but he's using another word from Exodus 34 in verse 77. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Again, I remind you, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. What the psalmist wants is he wants the particular promises that God has made to him specifically as one created by God and guided by his word. He wants those to be his comfort. Now, notice that he's not saying, actually, Lord, I'd like a lot of other things to be my comfort as well. And maybe as a last resort, I'll look to your steadfast love and mercy. No, he says, Lord, I want your steadfast love and mercy to be my comfort. Isn't that often the opposite of the way that we look at the circumstances of our lives in times, particularly times of affliction? We'll turn to all other sources for comfort. And maybe if those fail us or if those are unavailable or if those uh, prove not to be very much comfort at all, then, then and only then we think of the Lord's steadfast love and mercy. No, no, the psalmist says, what I'm asking you, Lord, is that my, my first comfort, my really my only comfort, is going to be the fact that you are a merciful God, that you are a promise-keeping God, that you are a faithful God, that you are a God of covenant love. That's his comfort. And the question that I have to ask you is, do you know God in this way? Is this what you know to be true of the God of the Bible? Do you know God in a saving way, in the the way that he's revealed himself as this God of covenant love and faithfulness? Make, Make no mistake, Exodus 34 goes on to say, and, and, and I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but will punish the sins of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. And so the question is, uh, how is it that you know God? Do you know him savingly? Do you know him as this covenant-keeping God? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the door, the shepherd, whose voice God's people hear and know and obey? Well, well, if if you do, then this is your comfort in the midst of affliction. This ought to be your only comfort in the midst of affliction. You could say, I, I'm being afflicted right now. This is, this is a time of great difficulty, but, but, but God, you are faithful, and, and even your affliction is just and good for me. You can cry out, according to Exodus 34, crying out and claiming God's covenant promises for yourself, what I think Spurgeon says are specific promises for specific people. You know, there's a 
there's what I would consider to be an ugly term. I'll probably step on toes here, an ugly term that's used in seminary education. It's this term you've heard it, practical theology. It's inelegant, I would say, and and perhaps even unbiblical in its implications. But 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 I would put it to you this way. Do, do you want do you want practical theology? All theology is practical, isn't it? But do you want practical theology? Well, study the doctrine of God. Study who God is as he's revealed himself in Scripture. Study, study these, these great terms that God uses to describe himself and his love for his people. That, that, that's practical in the midst of affliction. That's what it looks like to be guided by God's commands. Now, he makes a final personal petition, petition for himself, and that's in verse 80. He says this, May my heart be blameless, in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. The meaning here is simply this. The psalmist is looking at the whole of his life and asking that not only in affliction would he look to God for comfort, not only as he wakes up in the morning would he look to God's word for guidance and be taught by God throughout the day, but but that the whole of his heart would, would be one of integrity. That's what this word translated blameless really means, a, a kind of wholeness to it. It's the same terminology that's used of Job at the beginning of Job. It's not talking about sinless perfection, but it is talking about integrity of heart towards God. And that's what he's asking for. My, may my heart have that kind of integrity, that kind of wholeness. May that actually be said of me in my whole life. This is the kind of heart that that welcomes Christ alone, that is filled with God's spirit and God's word and, 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 and wants to do the will of God in Christ. I think again, and I've mentioned this before because it is such a vivid illustration of, of, of Calvin's seal with the, with the heart in the hand held up to God. And, and of course, you know the, the slogan underneath it, which translated said, promptly and sincerely in the work of God. That's that's the kind of thing that the psalmist is asking for. Lord, teach me from your word. Lord, comfort me from your character, your covenant love. Lord, may my whole life be one of integrity offered up to you promptly and sincerely. This, this really should be your great desire, your great aspiration for yourself and for your children. Are you looking for something else? Are you trying to look good in the eyes of others? Are you covering up and tolerating sin in your life? Are you entangled with temporal concerns, what Jesus calls the the worries of this world? Are these governing and ruling over your heart, or is your heart offered up to the Lord with integrity? Are you serving Him and Him alone? Now, the psalmist is mostly concerned here with asking for requests that pertain to him, but you notice there were a few verses that we skipped over, and these relate to the psalmist's thinking about others and the requests he asks about others. If, if, if those requests, those key requests that we've reviewed are the implications, the consequences of your hands have made me and fashioned me, then what are the consequences of that for other people? Well, with respect to others, look at what he says in verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice 
because I've hoped in your word. Verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. And then verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. I hope you notice the common thread running in all of these. The psalmist does, of course, request that the, that the proud, or it's translated insolent, are judged in verse 78. And in praying for this, he's really praying for nothing other than what the Lord has already commanded and promised will happen. But, but what animates him in these requests, if you notice this, and what is expressed in verse 74 clearly and verse 79 clearly, is that those on the outside, in seeing the life that this psalmist is living, will we'll trust in the word of God. We'll have greater and greater praise for God and greater and greater confidence in your word. Look at what he says in verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. They'll praise you. Not praising me. They're going to see what you're doing through me and praise you. And not only are they going to praise you, they're going to praise you specifically because they see me hoping in your word. And what does he say in verse 79? Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimony. So uh, the psalmist is asking that, that those around him would, would look to him and would look to him not because of anything again in him, but because, because they want to know the testimonies of God. They want to be taught the things of God. Again, I would ask you, is this what you want in the context of your ministry? Are you saying in your life, and particularly in your calling as a gospel minister, you're saying, Lord, I'm offering my whole heart up to you, and what I want with respect to other people is that other people will look to me and praise you, that other people will look to me and have greater confidence in your word, will love your word even more, and to the extent that they listen to my words and to the extent that they sit at my table, it will be so they can learn more about you and about your word and about your commands and what you instruct for those who are created by you. I hope I, I hope that what you're saying is what the psalmist is saying. I hope that what you're saying is what Paul says. Woe, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's really what the psalmist is, is being driven by in these requests. And that's what Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give praise to your Father who's in heaven. We're in a crooked and perverse generation, the Bible tells us. But what does Paul say about that context? We can become consumed with the crookedness and the perversity of the society in which we live. We can fill our minds with that and become angered about it. But what does Paul say? Paul says, you live in a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights to the world. So when we return to the context of this psalm, we see that the psalmist has this desire. This desire is ultimately to point people to the worship of God and to the word of God. And in so doing, he's really doing nothing more than what we see Jesus Christ do in a perfect and, and personal way in the incarnation. It's why some people reading through this section say, surely in verse 74 and in verse 79, this is, this is really Christ speaking through his word. And in a sense, of course, that's true because even as the psalmist himself expresses what it looks like to know you're created by God and offering your whole heart to God, in so doing, he is 
proclaiming the word of Christ to those around him. And how about us in the midst of our affliction? In the midst of our affliction, the Bible tells us you are God's pilgrim people. You are taken for his own possession. And what's the implication of that, according to Peter? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your hands have made and fashioned me. And that has consequences for all of life. It's consequences for our priorities, for our relationships, for our guidance, for our direction, for our decisions. And ultimately, it's meant to be a display of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ working in and through us. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It is, as you say, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Enlighten us by your word. May we not be like those who simply look in a mirror and forget what we've seen, but may we be both hearers and doers of your word. Change us, we pray. Cause us to give ourselves wholly to you and be guided fully by your commands. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.